Oh, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Okay. So we'll start with my <clears throat> verbal cue of a delicious dish. Yeah, because I'm flubbing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. I wanted to redo this one, isn't it? Thank you. I've wanted to be Thank on a you. Scraps podcast for quite some time now. So this oh, God. my dream come true. Ooh, better. <laughs> I hope you. no one gets canceled as a result of this. <laughs> <laughs> I would be violating my promise. You you you're both you're both very insightful and, and your comments, both of you, and I have learned so much from your questions. Thank you, Jojo. Thank you, Arun. That was good. Okay, so and now on to the podcast. Cool. All right. This is a Scrap Studio production, and you are listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. Brought to you with our sponsors, Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical. So, two years. Two years. Two, two years. years. Who'd have thought? A lot of marriages don't last that long. Um, my first one didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had me there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, two years. Who'd have Can't thought, right? Uh, I thought we were going to bomb after five, but uh, we've gotten two, two years. Five episodes? Five episodes. I just thought, thought we, we were, were not going to last five episodes. Well, there's something to be said for tenacity and, and downright stubbornness, I guess. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So how should we go about doing this? I don't know. I mean, I have... I, I think for everybody, first of all, for everybody who's listening in, we've gotten so much better over the last two years from being totally unprepared to something being reasonably well-prepared to extremely well-prepared for some of the episodes. And hopefully that's, that's reflected in, the, in some of the content that we've put out. But this particular episode is completely, completely unscripted. So just, just, just leaving it out there for any type of additional unparliamentary stuff that might come out during the episode. Okay. And I do want to throw in, we've got, the sound quality has gotten a lot better. I sound less like I'm 12 and more like I'm 13. So that's, that's a blessing yeah. for everyone. We, we had, we had to work a lot of magic <laughs> on that one. New microphone, new EQ, new mastering, <laughs> new engineering. New mastering and, and everything goes through something. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think that is one thing that I think we should feel so much more proud of because yeah. and let's let's not in a forget world the where there is so much distractions <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm taking testosterone uh, just to to improve my my podcast voice <laughs> paying off man i tell so, you yeah i mean i think if you're in somebody's ear i think you've got to make that special effort to to please them and uh it cannot be a lot of background distractions and noise and and crackles and and hollowy kind of words, which seems like somebody is in a 30-foot well under the ground uh, sometimes, or like right in your ear, and then one person speaks so loud and the other person is so low, and then you have to adjust your volume on the car stereo or on your phone when you're jogging, etc. It's not a pleasant thing. It's, so it's, I'm very glad that we were able to do yeah. that. Well, and that's also why I'm sitting here in my office sweating, because I can't have my fan on because the noise is too loud. But it's also like if Same if you if you listen to like a Beatles song and then the next song on your playlist is by Tool. I don't know why you would put those two right next to each other, but the mastering is so much different that the Beatles are really really quiet, and then Tool comes on and it's roar right in your ear. So hopefully we don't do that, except for just now. So I have some numbers. Um, okay. And I don't think I've ever told you that I'm going to prepare this no. for this episode. This is the only amount of preparation that I did literally 
five minutes before coming on to record this one. Okay. You ready for the numbers? Ready. Okay. So remember how we kind of started off in the first season mm-hmm. um, and one of our first episodes are not one of our first episodes. I mean, there were two, of course, but the first episode and the first guest was Warren Grill. And that is still the most downloaded episode of the entire series. Probably speaks more Ooh. to Warren's ability than ours. Don't tell Kit Parker. Um, <laughs> Kit, Kit is a very close second, a very close second. Okay. Um, I, I think we just got to kind of give a toss off between those those college undergraduate um, batchmates there. Uh, if you need to know the story, I think you should listen to both those episodes. Okay. Uh-huh. So that's my little pitch there. <laughs> but I want you to take a guess just in the first two seasons, which was where we went from being novices to something that we thought we were good at, mm-hmm. um, which spanned from August 2020 when we started through to May 2021, how much content did we put out? Uh, Tell me in terms of approximately off the top of your head, in terms of episodes or the number of hours. I'm going to guess 25 to 28 episodes. Okay. Do you know how much that is in hours? Well, judging by the fact that our first two guests were accumulative of maybe four hours, <laughs> um, I don't think they were all that long. Uh, I'll say 50 hours. Nah, 40, 42. So just the first two seasons, mm-hmm. which had approximately, I think you were, you were close on the number of episodes, but just in terms of minutes that we put out. And remember, each episode was different. It is not on the same theme. Just few caveats, right? Whenever people listen to a podcast, they always have the same questions, the same themes, and then the guests answer it differently. In these cases, especially for a science-based podcast, when you're taking different topics and speaking about journeys of people in science, just in the first two seasons, we put out 2,009 minutes of content. Holy mackerel. Yeah. And then, I'm sorry. Then we thought we needed to be a bit mature, right? So at the end of second, so we went to the, we went to the documentary series, mm-hmm. and uh, which was a complete departure from how we started and how we played it in the first year. How much do you think that content was in terms of total number of minutes? Psychedelics was 10 regular episodes and a couple of bonus tracks where we had we had Erica and Lindsay and Marianne as, and and um and Juan as bonus episodes so that's four bonus 10 14 Plus we also had the Twitter spaces on the 50th anniversary of drug prohibition bicycle day and we also had yeah, yeah, Neil yeah, Woods, yeah, yeah. the undercover Thunder- cop so 15 well. episodes so 15 episodes right so i'm going to say that was 21 to 22 hours a bit less than that but okay. 1050 minutes of content and 17.5 17 and a half hours of content just focused on one particular topic of which every single piece of every minute of the 1050 minutes that you had in that season had no replication whatsoever in terms of content. I think when I was just doing those numbers, it's like, it was just mind boggling to me, just even noticing that we were even capable of doing such things. Well, and it would have been a lot longer if you hadn't edited out all of my mispronunciations of the chemicals and, and scientific jargon. That I always got wrong. And the swearing and the laughter. I, I, that would have added an, at least another hour. Oh, the swearing yeah, would have easily, been another easily, hour. Yeah. Easily. Absolutely. Easily. 
And then since then, this season, how much do you think it was so far? Nine episodes. Mm, nine, nine episodes. So I'm going to say 10 and a quarter hours. Uh, around 540 40 minutes. So that's like around nine hours of content uh, there. And a total okay. of four seasons that's worth 3734 minutes ready for this in terms of hours if somebody has to browse through the whole catalog and if there are people which we know there are in terms of our listeners who have been through every episode this is the moment to actually fall at their feet bow at their Sorry feet again. or or bow but bow to them do everything from from both of us that's 62 hours send, send them, them a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist. Yeah. Oh, 62, how many hours 62 hours of content <laughs> 62 hours. 62 hours of content. I don't think my kids have listened to me for 62 hours over the course of their entire lives combined. But now they do listen to your podcast, right? Our podcast. Oh, they do. So they, they do yeah, listen to yeah, you Yeah, kind of. They check in. Yeah. Well, I We are a non-sciencey group over here. Yeah. So, of course, on, they're listening to more of the psychopathy of episodes because they know their mom is one. So yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. They they're worried it's hereditary. Guess what? <laughs> they're so screwed. Nature versus nurture, which again always brings me to the joke, the silly joke about epigenetics. But anyway, if you need that, you need to go back and listen to that episode on 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 psychopathy uh, with James Fallon, which I think was yeah. was fun. Um, so that was fun. I still want to go to the races with him. Oh, he he'd be fun to go to races with. Uh, yeah. absolute ball. I it's mean, Del Mar it's almost right like now. It's between him and Kit, if you put them in the same room, it's very likely that whoever is going into the room is going to come back dead and exhausted. And those two would still be happily sitting there talking. Uh, it's, it's those, that kind I, of personalities. I, I don't know. I don't know who would get a word in. I mean, <laughs> our, our part of our minutes would go, the episode length would go way, way up. And then, but our actually. Yeah, and, and there's no way that you can edit that because every, every second of that is going to be yeah. cold. Um, so that's entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, what do you want to say to everybody there, Jojo, on our second anniversary after co-creating and co-producing 62 hours of content? Well, like I said, two years is longer than my first marriage. So, so thank you all. And, uh, I, it's, I'm pretty shocked when you told me it was two years. I'm like, wait a minute, we lost a year. It's only been one year, but it's great. I'm, <laughs> I'm just so, I'm so grateful that you reached out and we, we, we started doing this together. It's been so much fun. I've learned a lot, gotten more confident in, in, uh, in my ability to communicate about science. And, and that's in large part due to this exercise or adventure, I guess is a better word. And it's just fun. Well, you're very good at winging it. <laughs> you're very good at coming with those quick retorts, which I think is, is completely a side of me. I don't, I think I'm genetically predisposed to not have that. And even though I talk a lot, I don't think I can come with, with quick retorts like the way you do. Well, uh, I think when we speak and when we have interviews and uh, even when we record, I mean, even when we have a script for certain things, you just go and you just change it right in the nick of the moment there as you're speaking, which I think is is fantastic, especially because you don't listen to yourself more than once or maybe more than once when you when you say it. And then when you when the final thing comes out, I have to listen to everything that you say <laughs> multiple so times as I edit. So, so I actually know. No, no, I actually know how some of those quick 
kind of retorts are and how instantaneous they are and it's it's just it's really magical sometimes you're like you just have to sit and wonder i sit and wonder how the hell did it actually happen because sometimes you do i've been in situations in the lab i've been in situations in clinical studies etc where you do stuff and you and you hope for the best and when you see it it's like it feels like magic but this is a different kind of magic because that type that spark is scraps spark whatever uh is is something that's that's really cool uh mm. and uh you, you just have to listen to the episodes to actually know Thank you. uh some of those that's really, I do I and, come from a family of uh, yeah, actors well, that's good that speaks for itself yeah extemporaneous yeah. yeah and bullshitters that's where i got all of it if it's not acting it's Don't bullshit tell everybody most scientists are bullshitters they may not oh, agree to it okay. and they might hate me for saying it but it is what it is they just put really good graphs and and matlab illustrations behind yeah it. and there's a very bad joke and it was that was made to me 20 years ago I will not repeat that because if I do that it will be a very very kind of sexist joke but it says a lot about exactly what and it's very true uh, I mean I think we're living in a society where everybody is too sensitive about things so I think we best just leave that out Oh no I don't know okay we maybe we'll leave the joke out but that does I went back and listened to Kit Parker's um episode again and there is a part kind of toward the end where he talks about how everyone is just too sensitive anymore yeah. and everybody needs a safe place and everybody nobody can get triggered nobody's feelings can get hurt and that we're we're losing our ability to communicate meaningfully and he wasn't advocating that we have to be mean or insensitive but on the other hand i think he's advocating that that we you know strengthen our backbones perhaps a little bit that's true well i obviously don't feel special my daughter's 12 so she'll tell you i'm not special now but i've been on some special teams there's no doubt about it i got some pipe hitters over there in that lab and they've taken on some problems that i've brought back to the lab as their own and they've made great progress i'm looking at people like grant gonzales mohammed badrasmi kristof shantre um shankook on i mean some folks who have thrown down on some problems because they realize they had opportunity to alleviate some human suffering and so um i am a, a piece of a great team i'm a small piece but uh, a great teams but i want to say something else to this you know in this i want to talk about creativity and innovation for just a second emotion is part of the creative process i was broken by that kid who got burned and the events that happened immediately thereafter are probably not stuff you want to discuss on this podcast but it was rough and um for me and all the guys who were there and um you see a lot of heartbreaking things in a war and um you know whether it's a whimsical day at the new england aquarium with my daughter or if it's a heartbreaking thing and seeing something bad happen to a child You've got to embrace the emotional component of the creative process that drives innovation. You've got to do that. Can we sanitize a workplace where no one wants to have their feelings hurt? No one wants to be challenged. Everyone wants a safe space where they feel absolutely nothing except congratulations for being who they are. That's not the way the world works. I tell my artists when we do a piece of art for behind some of the science I said, "Your job is to show the emotion of the creative process that potentiated this project. You got to do that. We have to understand that innovators are not happy when it gets started. 
I might have a whimsical idea having fun eating barbecue or with my daughter doing the man aquarium, but more than likely, if it's a medical thing, it's because someone saw someone suffer and they are not willing to accept that as part of the human condition. And they're gonna go in the lab and they're gonna beat that problem down until they come up with a solution for that patient. And, and that person who can translate that emotion into action He's not going to be sitting around watching CNN and Netflix during COVID. Someone who's not going to watch this kind of crap happen on the news. They're going to go in the lab or start a company. They're going to throw down that problem. That's the kind of teammate I want to have. I want to be on their team. And so that's what we've created in the, in the disease biophysics group at Harvard. That's true. And that I, I had that exact conversation um, at our day jobs today on exactly that same topic. But yeah, and I completely agree with you. <laughs> so I think just for the sake of the viewers, I think we should probably, I think our gift to all of you uh, is to probably just remind each one of you about our favorite parts of what we have done over the, over the last couple of years. Uh, I think we've probably spoken a lot about this season. We've seen many posts from us on LinkedIn and Twitter and other stuff. So we'll probably kind of leave this season out because we'll probably do that for the next anniversary about what's best and what's cool and all of that. But I think we have some really cool um, aspects of our interviews that we really liked when we did it. And I think we're just going to share that with all of you so that you can actually experience, hopefully, what we experienced uh, when we walk you through them. And it's not going to be the whole episode. It's just going to be little snippets of some aspects of the episode. So Jojo, where do you, which one do you want to start with? Oh, I have to, I think I have to start with Kit because I did re-listen to it yesterday and I have like a whole page of notes of things. Oh, you're that one person who downloaded from California. Mm -hmm. Yesterday. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I'm kidding. Go on. You're a stalker. (laughs) We know everything about everybody and what app they're using and how much they're listening when they're dropping out and when they're picking up. No, I don't know. Podcast apps don't give us that amount of data. It gives us data about where you're listening from. So based on your IP address, go I'll for ruin it. The stalker. We, I don't want to spook anybody. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the stalker. Yeah. Right. Kit's whole episode start to finish was just gold. And he, he kind of brings together so many parts of life that, I admire and, and and have always respected his military service is um, it, it's somewhat rare in our field, especially because he still uh, reports for duty. In fact, we were supposed to have a meeting next week and he's out on service. It's like, here's a Harvard professor with classes starting with a, you know, a wonderful little girl and, you know, his relationship with her is amazing. And then y- you get this out of office email sorry, I'm um, in military service right now. And after four tours of duty, not to mention his his work at Harvard, his lab there, his creativity, the barbecue stories are fascinating. Um, he throws out things like, yeah, the other night when I was having dinner with Kanye and Larry Page, you're just like, okay, that happens to everybody. And he's like, yeah, my good friend, Tori Birch which for those of you who don't know, she's a fairly successful designer. Um, you know, he's, you know, betting that he can design for her the, the, uh, 
perfect little black dress based on neuroscience. And he calls it the psychophysics of fashion. Psychophysics of fashion, right? That was he taught a class at Harvard, right? Yeah. 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 And the idea that um, building hearts and barbecue are the exact same thing in reverse was, I mean, it's crazy. Breaking down and building up (sighs) tissue. Yeah, I'll I'll never have my my dry rub beef pork ribs and (laughs) cornbread and baked beans the same way. So, So I think with that, we're going to present little snippets of 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 Kit talking about everything from from how he realized that creativity was important and how he needs to start playing with Play-Doh in the lab rather than with test tubes and Petri dishes. I, I like teaching courses at the Art Science Interface. So I've taught a course, I, I teach a course on fashion design every couple of years. Uh, and I teach, uh, and, and what we do is we get into the visual psychophysics of, of, of fashion and also the textiles and stuff. Uh, I've taught a course on barbecue, that's a 300 pound handmade barbecue smoker my students made. And now we started a company with my students, we smell bar- still barbecue. I think, that. I think, I th- I think his, his barbecue company um, or barbecue maker Desora is doing really yeah. well, and uh, uh, and so does I think his other tissue engineering company called Curie Bio. Uh, they're also kind of doing really well. They raised quite a bit of money recently, and and they're doing really really well, uh, where they're developing kind of tissue based models for drug screening and toxicity, yeah, um, screening purposes, etc. So I think that's that's cool. That's really really cool. So I think with that we're going to present little snippets of 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 Kit talking about everything from do a little bit of work on law enforcement reform. And that started as a course using counterinsurgency methods against criminal gangs. That's an ongoing project. We're doing the 10 year anniversary of that. So trying to find ways to kind of look at that art science interface is kind of fun. So I sometimes will have a student apply for a job as a scientist in my laboratory. And I always read the hobbies first. And if it says they're an artist, I ask to see the portfolio. So now one of the things I do is I hire undergraduates and their primary job when they come into the lab is to be an artist. And then they can transition into a science project because the art gives them the opportunity to engage with everybody. And also I get to see how, how really creative they are. So um, it's been kind of fun to explore this kind of thing. And people are less intimidated about the science if they come in from, I, what I argue is that I have more in common with people who are just creative, no matter who they are, than necessarily other scientists, engineers. So that kind of common ground makes for like some creative synergies. You know, being a college professor and being an army officer, I mean, the, the primary, you know, the actuators in the laboratory and on the battlefield are these, you know, 18 to 30 year old young people who are driven. So you really become kind of a student of how to motivate them, how to push them and what they're capable of. So tools I've learned in leadership in the army have gone back into the laboratory things i've learned on a college campus and the lab have gone back into you know leading young people in the military so i'm fortunate that the the substrate i'm working with these 18 to 30 year old people is kind of the same in both so you might be surprised at how similar some of these leadership challenges to, are uh how we discovered a kid uh had many creative abilities and how that changed the world of teaching students for him to to kind of uh, cooking briskets on the Harvard Yard on a cold winter snowy morning with his uh, design class and a whole host of other things. So that's the and snippet Anna that's Maya. coming up. 
and my daughter Let's Amaya. Don't forget this was yeah. Amaya's de- debut. She did a great job on her cuttlefish. Yes. Multimedia generation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me tell you about the funny thing. First time, my, our, our group meetings are kind of like a gypsy camp. People are coming and going. You never know who's going to show up. So the first time we did this, I had two gynecological surgeons show up, one from South Africa and one from the Netherlands. And they were interested in our nanofiber technology to make meshes for pelvic organ prolapse. So you can imagine the Play-Doh models that they created. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is going to fly well with these students here. You know, everyone's so sensitive about everything. But it immediately communicated to everybody the challenges their patients were facing. But now the great thing about this Play-Doh model is because you can rearrange it in space and time really quick. I have a really good diagnostic of the people in my laboratory and whether or not they really understand what they're working on. And so we can quickly diagnose. So Play-Doh is like a part of my laboratory. I mean, it's here on my desk. I mean, there's Play-Doh everywhere here because we can quickly do a model which we can change in space and time to make sure we're tracking on this. Where did this come from? My daughter playing Play-Doh all the time. And me having Play-Doh here in my office when she'd come and hang out and us playing around with it and then me grabbing it with a student. And I said, this needs to be institutionalized as part of our group. So my daughter and I go, we have a lot of creative ideas. And, uh, you know, going to the New England Aquarium was where a lot of our ideas have come from because, you know, I, I was there with her one time when we had this idea. And it dawned on me, you know, one of my big interests, uh, Arun and I have a common interest in the heart, and um, the heart is a muscular pump. And if you go and take a look at marine life forms, with the exception of crustaceans, almost all their musculature is developed around pumping, pumping as they swim or they're pumping fluids to their body. And so it dawned on me that the fundamental rules of muscular pumps are unknown to us. That's why we have difficulty treating different forms of heart disease, like diastolic heart disease. And so I'm watching my daughter run around and I'm having these eureka moments about, hey, listen, in the end, I should be able to build these things with the common physiological attributes of the biophysical principles that underlie the heart. And so we've started doing that and realizing what's important and what's a fact versus what's assumed in terms of the way the heart's. So I'm very fortunate in that my daughter tolerates these kind of creative things. And uh, when I taught a barbecue class at Harvard, I would bring her every Saturday. We'd smoke a brisket in Harvard Yard, and, you know, uh, I'm a dad. I'd bring her to, 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 to Harvard Yard. Turned out we had 110 inches of snow that, 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 that winter when we were smoking brisket out there. She'd try to, she would be riding her bicycle around the pass of Harvard Yard. That's how she learned how to ride her bicycle. We'd smoke brisket, and then she'd judge it, and then she'd be taking smoke brisket to school on Mondays. And so, that and then I went to ice cream school and got her involved with making ice cream with me at home and it's fun to have a creative partner who um, is uh, I mean I'm making I teach a fashion class she likes to play dress up we do barbecue because we're southerner she eats barbecue she thinks I teach classes about her life what else would you teach classes about this is what we do the right? barbecue stories are fascinating um he throws out things like, yeah, the other night when I was having dinner with Kanye and Larry Page, you're just like, okay, that happens to everybody. You know, a crazy lab that I run, and what we realize is that creativity is not specialized, and you should broadly develop your creative skills. And so, uh, Joe, you and I were talking a moment ago about how we read the hobbies. 
you know, if you collect stamps and do bird watching and read books, that's not as interesting to me than if you do light construction, you cook, you sew, or you do sculpture. Then I know that you're creative. And I, I just, just to, I don't mean to belabor this to it, but I'm going to bring one more point in. Several years ago, I got asked, uh, I was back visiting my family down south, and a girl that had gone to high school, and she's, a, she's an attorney, went to high school with my sister, called me, heard me, I was in town, said, hey, listen, there's this kid, he's um, early 20s, hadn't had a whole lot of mentoring or breaks in life, but he's going to community college now for the first time, he's taking a biology class, he's really excited, would you would you meet with him and talk to him? I said, you know, I gotta catch a flight tomorrow morning, but if he meets me at the Waffle House at five o'clock in the morning, I'll buy him breakfast and we can talk a little bit. Show up at 5 a.m. in the, in the Waffle House down there, it's still dark down there in, in Georgia where we were, and we start talking a little bit. I say, hey, listen, take a few more classes, and if you get interested and get some traction, give me a call, maybe come spend a summer up in my laboratory. It's really kind of exciting for him. You know? Just a kid with talent and interest who never had an adult show any interest in him. So I've been delivering pizzas for a living ever since he graduated from high school. So we pay the bill and we walk out into the parking lot. As I'm going to my little crappy little red rental car, there's this really souped up hot rod right next to it and all these beeps go off, you know, like, you know, when you unlock your car with a little clicker in your hand. I'm like, hey man, is this your ride? And he goes, yeah. And I said, man, this is, I said, this is really nice. He goes, well, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, work on this. I said, wait a second, you, you built this thing? And, and he said, yeah. And I said, hey man, why didn't you tell me that? The skill set you required to do the body work and the engine and the electrical system, I, I can put you to work in the lab immediately. This is a skill set. Well, that's the point, is he didn't realize that these things that were his avocation could actually be his vocation. He didn't realize that, that the stuff that he probably never would have put on a resume could be work, put to work immediately in a laboratory or a startup company, academic lab, industrial lab, a startup company. He didn't realize, he had to start, and I'm traveling away and I'm thinking, we're doing this all wrong. My job as a professor is to find and cultivate talent. And if all I'm doing is looking at kids with college degrees, going through a regular college system, I'm going to miss so much. So we've opened up our laboratory. We have the artists coming in. We have community college kids coming in. We got a lot of talent in the laboratory now. And the idea is that these are talents that aren't always going to wind up on a resume. And for the leader, both in industry and academia, your job is to maintain a situational awareness. So you can find that idea from the pizza guy, from uh, your, 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 your 10 year old or nine year old daughter, you know, from that person who's got a skill set that they think maybe wouldn't translate to the lab. But the most important thing is just get as much creative energy in your laboratory as possible. And that's why we ripped out part of my lab and made a studio space for artists. The idea was we wanted to bring in these artists who have a really high cycle time and just jack up the creative mojo to an energy level that never been seen in a science lab. And so now we've got artists, filmmakers, all kinds of cats coming through the lab and uh, it's a lot of fun because of that. And the creative creativity of my graduate students and postdocs has just gone off the charts since this experiment happened. So it's a real lesson in, in creative financing because you got to pay the salaries, all these artists, and um, and uh, and then the way you ought to do STEAM as a lifelong curriculum. So what's your favorite? What's, your, what's so been your favorite? Mine... I think has to be, especially having done and really enjoying the creative aspects of, of podcasting here, which for me, I think the biggest prize, as I said, 
is listening back to what we have created when I'm editing them in all its warts and all kind of mm-hmm. uh, fashion. But at the same time, then realizing how best to tell the story. And that's so different from when I do science, because when I do science, all I care about is how do I communicate to an audience that is informed, which is mostly journal articles, journal reviewers, uh, stakeholders within the industry, blah, blah, blah. But I don't really think about how to communicate to somebody completely outside of it. And this one has taken me, going in the spirit of what Kit said, it's taken me in a direction in life, in mindset, that that almost kind of takes me on a journey of what would it look like if the output of was a certain thing. And I get to experiment with it. Uh, so the actual, sometimes in our, you, you will actually see that our um, episodes are very heavily produced, uh, but it's heavily produced for a reason, purely because it, we think that it enhances the level of understanding when there are other things that are accompanying it than just spoken words. It builds up emotion, it builds up enigma around a subject, etc. So there, I'm going to pick our interview with Sandy. I think that for me, just going back to, to how we kind of had that episode and then we were sitting there, I still remember as if it was yesterday, it was close to 8 p.m. in the UK when we recorded. It was afternoon in the US East Coast and we were just sat there listening to Sandy Greenberg. And for anybody who doesn't know Sandy Greenberg, if you've ever listened to Audible, if you're listening to it, or if you just like to listen to things fast without having any type of compression in the audio, that audio compression technology was invented by Sandy Greenberg. And he was not just an inventor, he did it out of need for himself so that he could grasp all the information, but he went and did other things outside of that. Here is an excerpt from Sandy Greenberg's interview. I'd be pleased to. Thank you for the kind introduction. I lost my eyesight in my junior year at Columbia University. And in order to get through the very long reading list, I had to ask friends to come and read to me. The most uh, significant one was as you mentioned, Art Garfunkel, who read to me daily, as he had promised to do when I was back home in Buffalo recovering from eye surgery. And I also used a reel-to-reel tape recorder, frustrated by the pace that it spoke at, which was 150 words a minute, which is about the rate I'm speaking at now. I started manually to turning the tapes, and what I got was essentially a distorted, very distorted sound, which made the words unintelligible. And one day I sat back and said, my God, I have to do something about this. I have to figure out a way to compress speech so that I can absorb information as rapidly as my sighted counterparts because 150 words a minute just didn't do it. People were reading at two and three and four and 500 words a minute. And so I decided to invent a machine to do that. But of course, I was a senior at Columbia with no resources. I was blind, as I mentioned. 
and it appeared to many, including me, that I had no future. But it stayed in me to try and figure out how to do this daunting thing. And I reasoned that basically we human beings have been communicating principally by speaking less and and learning, speaking and listening. <clears throat> and uh, I went further and discovered, of course, that Gutenberg had come along with the printing press 500 years ago. So it seemed to me, perhaps, that we have genetic and historic reasons why we might be capable of adapting as readily to the spoken word as to the printed word. And that was the infrastructure around which I forged ahead and all of this theorizing happened in my senior year at Columbia but then I was on to Harvard Graduate School and I concluded that the fundamental task based upon what I just said would be to figure out how to convert the mechanical energy of the voice box and larynx into electrical energy and fortunately Many of the people who read to be at Harvard were techn technologically oriented, some physicists, some engineers, and there were some other friends I met related to MIT. And for the entire decade of the 60s, I studied and learned, and finally, after all of those years, was able to achieve a patent on the fundamental compression expansion of human speech in 1969. And it has affected millions of blind people and as you know today in places like audible if you listen you're able to compress the speech considerably and many of my friends do that so it is in fact far beyond just the blind uh, and that's a brief history of compressed speech there's a very personal story that we are going to recreate it for you in our own new style of narration, which we hope makes sense and it hopefully takes you in the path that when myself and Jojo were actually kind of recording it in real time, we almost kind of had a tear at the end of it when, when he, was, he was talking about that particular incident in his life. And if you've read his book, I think Hello it's a darkness, fabulous, fabulous friend. book, but at the same time, the way he tells it in his own words and the way he just took his time to say it, I don't think we could have ever done. We could have done a million interviews or scripted narrations of something. It would have never felt that authentic. I think that to me was the favorite part. And I think that's what we're going to share with everybody here. And if I recall correctly, all three of us yes. cried at some point during that yes. episode. Yeah. yeah. Silently, but it yeah. I think yeah. you can kind of tell where that pops up. But that goes to sort of your your earlier point about this format is a lot of our listeners are academics and so you write to a formula, you write, you know, for um when you're submitting to a journal, it's formulaic. Um and and this is kind of anything but because it involves so many human stories that you never know where. I mean, we can kind of guess where things are going to go, but in the real great human stories, you have no idea where you're going to end up. And I love that part. 
Art Garfunkel is, has played an amazing role throughout your entire, well, starting at, at university, having met at, at Columbia just shortly after school began your freshman year. Um, so I'm curious, of all the stories that you recount in the book, meeting him, um, his critical moment when he convinced you to come back to school and try to graduate, not just graduate, but graduate with your class. And then there's another pivotal moment you describe where Art had the confidence in you that you didn't yet have. And he was the, the purveyor of that confidence. He was the reason that you refound that confidence after having lost your sight. And I'd ask you to pull on any one of those strings that you like, but I'm curious which of those three pivotal moments um, that include art in your life is the most important to you? A very excellent question, very perceptive. Uh, they were all obviously important, but the one that has stuck with me my entire life since then was the time when he and I were in Midtown Manhattan together and he always would take me back to the dorm after we had a meeting and he decided or was told that he had a drawing due of the Seagram building the following morning because he was an architecture student. I told him on the other hand that if I didn't get back to my reader, a friend named Michael Mukasey, that I would be doomed, that my career would be over. Just that simple. Well, we talked in those terms heatedly for, I don't know, maybe a half an hour, 20 minutes. And he simply decided that he had to go do his homework and left. And there I was midtown manhattan during rush hour desperately needing to get to that local train to get me back to columbia and so i inserted myself into the crowd and by staying very close to people and holding on to handrails i was able to get down to the bottom of the subway station a very cavernous place chilling so I was down there alone and blind, and it was rush hour. And I was petrified. I felt entombed and had a rock solid conviction that I would never get out of that pit. So what else could I do? But I had to get back, so I bumped into columns. I bumped into people, suitcases. Coffee cups. And then I bumped into a woman's breast. And she was very kind because I had just a few seconds earlier, hit a column which cut my forehead. And she took her hand and wiped the blood away and started telling me about 
the fact that I appeared to be a very nice boy. And at that moment, I was thinking about whether I was a nice boy or whether I had been taken down because of my blindness into real darkness. Fortunately, the encounter went well. She left, wished me good luck. And I, excuse me, I turned away from her, rushing away because I was felt fortunate that that incident, which could have been much more dangerous, was finished. I hit a lady who was pushing a stroller and she had an infant in the stroller and I tripped over the stroller as the mother screamed at me in a language that was foreign to me. And I wound up with the upper body hanging over track because I had fallen after tripping the baby. That was a pivotal moment in my life because my initial instinct was to pray that the train would sever me and end the fakery that I was engaged in, trying to prove to everybody that I wasn't blind, that I was just a regular guy, when I knew for certain I wasn't just a regular guy. I had this burden that I had to deal with every second of every day. Then I realized that the people who cared for me, my girlfriend Sue, Art, Jerry, and others, they depended on me, in a way, to maintain a facade of bravery. And I depended on them for making sure I understood that there was still a real world out there, even though it appeared at many times to be beyond my grasp. So I got up and started Walking away, my usual stance was to put my arms in front of me so that many, I'm sure, thought I was a drunkard, and made it over to the shuttle, which took me across town to the local, which got me back to Columbia, Broadway and 116th. And I wound up being bloodied, blood was trenching my socks my forehead nicked again and again but I finally sat down and waited took the long the long ride up to Columbia when I emerged from the subway into the sunshine I might have which was as glorious a feeling that I think I've ever had because I knew what had happened except I bumped into a man who said, oops, 
Excuse me, sir. It was Arthur. He had followed me the entire way and subsequently told me that he never really had a sketch due the following morning. It was his way of trying to make sure that I could do things on my own, that I had confidence in myself. And at that moment, I had gone into the subway with one Weltanschau. And when I emerged from it, my worldview was completely different because all fear, all doubt vanished. But on the positive side, I now believed that I could do anything I wanted to do. Reasoning, of course, that if you can get through the New York City's subway system as a blind kid, then you could probably take on many other daunting challenges. And so I am indebted to Arthur for that gift that he gave me. My girlfriend Sue was extremely upset when she heard about it, telling Arthur that he could have killed me. Of course, Arthur said there was no possibility that he was down there following me and that he could have saved me. And then flash forward to about a month ago, when he and I were recording piece for the Today Show, and we had a long time to chat, and they didn't put this part on the air, but in the middle of the session, it turned out to be a very candid session between Al Roker, Arthur, and me. And he said, Sanford, you know, I've been thinking about it. And I think Sue may have been right. It was an extremely risky thing to do. And I contradicted him. And I said, Arthur, it was the most important thing anyone could have done for me because that episode defined me then and it defines me now. Yeah, I think those two are things that we would want to kind of recreate uh, for all, for the listeners just so that they can appreciate the breadth of things uh, that we were so fortunate to cover in the first few episodes that we had. I mean, just the, the different caliber and the personalities of the guest itself was such a huge thing because I don't think we ever dreamt of of lining up and we never did everything that people ask you to do when you create a podcast, which is Make a list of people that you want to invite. Invite them, create a schedule. Like we never did any of that. We basically went from week to week, week to week, week to week without knowing what the next episode was going to be. And that's how it was all the way until May 2020, to be honest. And then then we kind of said, okay, we need to create something that was a bit more structured so we could tell things about things that people didn't appreciate enough. And then it became the psychedelics in the season four but I think I wished, I still wish that for that spontaneity sometimes that we had in the first two years. That was great. It was very stressful, but 
but very great. So I th- I think another one that really stands out for me, and and especially in terms of broadening my own understanding of of what even as a layperson is sort of everyday science, something that's become so mainstream. But I I never knew the origins, and I never knew the um the battles behind it was our episode with Stanton Rowe and the Taver. I think that one's, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't know somebody with his discovery built into a body somewhere close by. Uh, yeah, catheter-based aortic valve replacement, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is a good one. Yeah, especially if you have a 70 or an 80-year-old grandmother, grandfather, great-grandfather, some uncle, great uncle, whatever, grand uncle, parents, whoever it is. In I law, think parents. People would have been. <laughs> You're getting. <laughs> Those are my parents. They're not my great grandparents. Jesus. <laughs> but, you, you know, it's just one of those origin stories that you never get to hear. So that was. Having said that, my, my dad died because he had a bicuspid aortic valve. And I think. Oh, wow. Um, we think that he basically had syncope, and that's why he passed away at the age of 57. So I don't have bicuspid aortic valve. I've been echoed, but I think it for me, and also having worked in cardiac surgery and seen how the various mechanical valves were built and implanted quite a few number of them and assisted in surgeries as both first and second assistant back in India, I think just knowing how the field has moved since I've left surgery uh, back in 2002, to where the field is now in terms of most of these procedures are not done as an open heart procedure. It's done as a catheter-based procedure. It's just, it just, it was great. And Stan was somebody that I'd come to know. I've known about Stan for a, for quite a while. Uh, but I think it all started with with the first story that I kind of mentioned. And, and we will just present that to you about this physician called Henning uh, from Aarhus, Denmark, who basically had the idea and then wrote it up. He did a few experiments and he's just standing up in the middle of a conference hall. And apparently Stan says there was a picture of that where he stands in an empty conference hall with nobody around him. But that was a technology that ultimately went to change the world of transcatheter aortic valve replacement as we know it. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, I love your mention of Dr. Henning Ruth Anderson. He uh, deserves a huge amount of credit for his uh, truly innovative work. And he's a wonderful man, by the way. I don't know if you've had a chance to meet him, but a very warm, yeah, a very, a very warm, engaging, thoughtful, innovative guy who uh, I would say the, the only challenge Henning had was he was... Uh, 15 years ahead of everybody else. Well, the story of Henning <clears throat> is that he was inspired with the idea after having attended a course in Phoenix, Arizona um, on endovascular techniques. Um, he was an interventional cardiologist and he attended this course and he saw stents for the first time. But unlike many people, including Julio Palmas, who's a brilliant, brilliant man, um, unlike Julio, when he saw stents, he thought of this concept of putting a valve in, you know, just when he was first introduced. And so 
um, Henning says, flying back from Phoenix to Aarhus, Denmark, where, which is his home, he started making drawings of placing valves inside of stents. Well, again, like many other, uh, or unlike many other inventors, um, it didn't stop with just making some drawings and filing a patent. As you said, Henning uh, did extraordinary work. He went back and did 80 animal experiments, which is just amazing. He went to the venture shop, bought pig hearts, hand resected out the porcine valves. He hand made stents from sternal wires. Uh, and actually the jig that he created and used to create the stent is at Edwards Life Sciences, which is kind of fun that he donated it to, to the museum there. And then he hand sewed on the, uh, these porcine valves uh, with really um, atrocious, what he called cardiology knots, because uh, cardiologists don't really know, learn how to tie surgical knots very well. <laughs> but he did 80 animal experiments, which is just astounding. And um, he did fundamentally prove the concept of a collapsible and expandable um, what we today call a percutaneous heart valve. It was pretty amazing. So it, with with 80 animal experiments, I imagine the butcher was getting a little bit curious about what was happening there. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. He, he somehow kept, I don't think he did it over a week's time, okay? I think it took him a few years, and he had a nice team of people he worked with there, and um, they did file patents. But they ran into the same fundamental challenge that we did as well. And that is that um, the acceptance of this idea was, um, was very poor. So Henning first tried to publish. So he submitted his manuscript from doing this animal work to Jack, to circulation, to the Lancet and, you know, thinking, well, this is, this is really breakthrough work. People are going to want to see this. No one wanted to publish it. You know, who are you? Some, somebody no one had ever heard of in Aarhus, Denmark, right? So he got rejected. And, um, and it looks like he was rejected citing low priority. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who needs this, right? I mean, who needs a percutaneous valve? And um, so he finally, you know, he was a persistent guy. So he finally got an abstract, uh, a poster uh, that was accepted at a European Congress of Cardiology. And uh, there's a picture of him, a very young Henning, standing in front of this poster. It was, I don't know, poster number 1,327 or something like that, right? In the very back of the poster hall. And nobody showed up. I mean, here's a guy with this breakthrough idea, and no one's interested in it. And um, so he takes it to industry. So he goes to see all the uh, the top heart valve companies. And you can imagine uh, the heart valve companies uh, service the cardiothoracic surgeons. This is who sits on their advisory boards. And cardiothoracic surgeons say, a percutaneous heart valve? Well, that, that's a stupid idea. 
you know, percutaneous heart valve, I mean, surgical heart valves work perfectly well, and our surgery is nearly perfect. Why do we need something like that? So he was routinely rejected by all of the heart valve companies. And um, I only ran into Henny uh, when I started doing diligence on Crivier. Crivier didn't actually know about Henny and Ruth Anderson. Dr. Crivier was the chief of cardiology in Rouen, France. He had a keen interest in non-surgical treatment of aortic stenosis. And um, he had been the inventor of balloon aortic valvuloplasty. And balloon valvuloplasty was the first attempt at trying to provide these patients. And we should probably set the stage for who are these patients. The average age of a patient undergoing heart valve surgery is between uh, early 70s and early 80s. This is when aortic stenosis occurs. And of course, aortic stenosis is the narrowing of the aortic valve, which sits between the left ventricle and the aorta. And all of your blood supply goes through it. A normal aortic valve is three to four centimeters in effective uh, orifice area. These patients have a 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 square centimeter valve area. So all of your, your cardiac output is being squeezed through this very narrow, narrowed um, calcific fibrotic valve. And it causes, we've known from Brumwald in, in the uh, 60s, that it causes, um, you know, once patients are symptomatic, it causes sudden death, syncope, heart failure, and um, it's devastating. Once they become symptomatic, they fall off a cliff. And they go through a long period of being asymptomatic, but once they become symptomatic, it's devastating. Um, so Cribier came up with this idea for a balloon to treat this disease so that these older patients didn't have to go through open heart surgery. And in fact, the balloon provided help, right? Patients went from 0 0.6 so to maybe 1.0 valve area. The problem was and the in six months kind of to nine months, almost all of them had restenosed. The so you're doing the same principles for the valves. That's exactly right. And um, again, it helped um, for a short period of time. And patients felt better, which was really encouraging. The problem was it wasn't a durable procedure. So Crivier um, came up with the idea of, well, let's make a percutaneous heart valve. And many of his ideas were different from Dr. Anderson's, but he, didn't, he wasn't really influenced by Anderson. He didn't really know about them. So when Crivier presented this to me, I was at Johnson & Johnson, and I had worked on developing the first coronary stents. And so the idea of having a a stented valve made a lot of sense to me. I just didn't know much about valvular disease. So I had to go back and study it, and I was looking at all the precedents, and I went to the studies, and I found uh, both Anderson patents, and I found his early publications. And um, this was in the early 90s. And um, I thought it was very interesting. So I was, um, I had, 
worked on the coronary stent for many years, and then I moved over to head up um, business development and advanced technology and worldwide clinical research at J&J in their coronary business. And um, so I worked on licensing Cribier into J&J. But it was about the same time that J&J was buying Cordis. And so when J&J bought Cordis, they were trying to integrate you know, all of the Cordis development projects, all of the J&J projects. And um, it was... It was an untenable agglomeration of R&D projects. And so the Cribier percutaneous valve, crazy idea, fell off the table. It was not interesting enough to pursue. And then, in fact, they never even did the early prototype. Well, I left J&J about that time, um, went to Datascope for a few years working there. And that's where Cribier called me up and said, Stan, you always liked this idea. Why don't we do something with it? Because J&J isn't doing anything. I said, well, why don't you call them and see if you can get your rights back? So I gave him the guy to call. And in fact, Rubier called the guy and said, hey, you guys haven't done what you were supposed to do. Why don't you send, sign this back over to me? And the guy did. And um, we started talking about forming a company around this idea. I had actually left Johnson & Johnson because the, the integration of the two groups uh, run by McKinsey <laughs> was miserably done. <laughs> and so they ended up, over the next two years, losing almost all of the Cordis management and all of the J&J management and turned it over about five more times, which is probably the why the uh, coronary stent business just completely collapsed at J&J was... Uh, the turnover of management and people who knew the business, uh, which was a travesty. But, um, you know, I, I didn't like the way it was being run, so I left, went to Datascope. And this is when Cribier called me. I was sitting there. Uh, and um, I was a bit frustrated by um, trying to grow Datascope. Um, and so I, um, you know, I started talking with Cribier about this. And... It ended up that uh, Stan Rabinovich had joined me from Johnson & Johnson uh, at Datascope, and he and I reached out to Marty Leon, who had been my medical director at J&J, uh, and is a very prominent uh, interventional cardiologist. And the four of us decided that we would form a partnership to try to develop percutaneous heart valves. And from that, uh, we formed percutaneous valve technologies, and Stan and I both ended up leaving Datascope to spend all of our time trying to develop this crazy idea. Well, um, I went out and raised a little bit of seed funding um, for this, and um, we, Stan and I found a company in Israel that would uh, was interested in doing um, contract development work for us there. Um, and so we had kind of the, the beginnings of this um, laid out, and that's when I kind of went on the road to try to get Series A financing. We did a little bit of early prototyping work, and I'd put together a really bad PowerPoint presentation, and I went uh, 
up and down Sand Hill Road. You know, I had been a vice president at Johnson & Johnson. I had launched one of the most successful devices ever in the medical device arena, the core. The Palmashat stent sold, I think, about $650 million the first year. So I had, I had some credibility to talk to these guys. And so I would go up and down Sand Hill Road and, and try to raise money for PBT. And um, the venture capitalists would listen carefully. And, of course, they're not heart valve experts. And they would say, um, well, that's an interesting idea. I haven't, I haven't heard of that one before, a percutaneous heart valve. We'll look into it. Well, what does that mean? We'll look into it. This is a story many entrepreneurs can tell you, right? Well, we'll look into it means, well, that's an interesting one. We don't know anything about it, so we're going to call up the experts and see what they say. So they call up the experts, and of course, the experts are the cardiothoracic surgeon. And what do the cardiac surgeons say about percutaneous heart valves? Well, they say, well, that's just about the stupidest idea I ever heard. Okay, we can treat 100-year-old patients with surgical heart valves. We perfected this surgical procedure over 30 years. We have a 4% mortality rate. Just go look at the Society of Thoracic Surgery. Um, surgical valves last for 20 years. Even the tissue valves last 20 years. The mechanical valves last forever, they would say. Um, so what problem are you solving? We can treat all these patients, right? Um, if you ask a, a surgeon how many patients they turn away a year, they would say uh, two or three are really non-surgical patients. There's no market for this. And besides that, there are all the technical issues. You can't collapse a heart valve. Okay, if you put tissue in it, tissue can't withstand crimping. Okay, you can't stent aortic stenosis out of the way. That's impossible. We take out these valves every day. It's a rock. You can't stent that open. You can't make something like that durable. It's impossible to make that durable. You know, these things are very difficult to make. If you did try to stent it open, uh, it would fragment and all the patients would have a stroke. And by the way, cardiologists don't know anything about this business and ought to stay out of it. Yeah. And, and, and to the first point there, Stan, isn't the fact that most of the patients are elderly and there is a huge risk of anesthesia when these patients would go, um, would go under and therefore that would potentially increase the risk of complications. So did the surgeons already think that they had sorted that? Well, so I always say, you know, my perspective on this, number one, is that the surgeons were not disingenuous. This is their actual experience of surgery, right? But it's the blind men and the elephant. They can't see the other side of the elephant, right? Um, so... They were being genuine about their experience and uh, other than the cardiologists don't know anything about this, which is a bit of a territorial response. Um, I think that was their true experience of surgery and they were genuinely convinced that this was an impossible thing to do. Uh, but I would say this to all the entrepreneurs out there, right? If you're doing something that's disruptive in medicine, just expect this kind of response. You're going to hear it. It's a disruptive. You're going to have people say, it's a stupid idea. It'll never work. And I think the idea is you've got to really just focus on 
patients and what is their experience and who's being served and who's not being yeah. served, who has good outcomes and who's keeping score. All those things are, are relevant, right? Let's start with, with your question. Um, no one asked the stupid question. I always say the, the stupid question was, I think, if you think about this from the patient's perspective, you would say, why would I refer a non-surgical patient to a surgeon? Yeah. Why would I want to go under the knife? Right. So all these referring physicians are sitting on patients who either refuse surgery or they think are poor surgical candidates. Why would they possibly send them to a surgeon who does what? Surgeons do surgery. That's all they do. They're not going to treat them medically. So there are tens of thousands of patients out there who have aortic stenosis that are not seeing surgeons. So the surgeons say, we only turned down two or three patients. Of course, they're all pre-screened. They, they don't yeah. ever make it to see the surgeon. So, and, and I think some of the other questions are not just technical questions about can you build a valve? But I think some of the questions were around, like, if you keep score by who's alive yeah. and who's dead, it doesn't really tell the story well, right? The story, the patient experience is, you know, if you think about it from a patient perspective, they live or they die is binary. And if you talk to a patient, they will say, listen, um, what do you want from your surgery? They say, well, I, you know, if I either I live or I die, but I don't want to have a stroke. I don't want to be sent to a nursing home. I want my energy back and I want to go home and be with my family. Those were their goals, which are very understandable. Now the question is, does surgery really give them that? Well, a large percentage of patients were going to nursing homes. They don't do well, right? So morbidity is actually more impactful patients than mortality because mortality they live or they die right we can keep that score of that but if you have 20 or 30 percent morbidity right i have renal failure i have reoperation i have bleeding i have stroke wow that that's what impacts patients now can i improve upon that well if i don't open up your chest stop your heart party on cardiopulmonary bypass okay instead of doing a three-hour surgical procedure with months of recovery, if I could audaciously actually do this while you're awake, okay, what could happen? What's the opportunity? Now, we didn't have all the answers, but we had that dream. We had that dream that maybe we could make this look a little bit like a stent procedure. I'll go in through the femoral artery, snake a catheter up, take it around the aortic arch, cross the aortic valve, not easy to do in aortic stenosis, and expand this valve with a very, very strong stent, which will hold it in place. In fact, it's, it's pretty ironic, right? When we first started making these, and we wanted to do animal studies to develop this procedure, when you put it in pigs, the absence of aortic stenosis means it won't stay in place. So we worked very closely with Dr. Crivier and his associate, Dr. Elchaninov, out of Rouen. We did our animal studies in Paris, so we flew there. And 
The very first pig we put it in, it stayed in for about, I don't know, a day, day and a half. Looked beautiful. And then the next, I don't know, 50 animals, it embolized. So we use the disease. Because the normal internal structure of the aorta is slippery, whereas a disease aortic valve has calcium, has sclerose tissue, fibrous tissue to hold this whole kind of structure in place, which is what you're trying to get to. Yeah, it's making lemonade out of lemons, right? So we use the disease to actually hold the valve in place. But when you watch all these things embolize, it just scares the hell out of you as an innovator, right? So we learned a lot doing these animal experiments, but they were also miserable in that we didn't, uh, it took a long time to figure out how to actually validate a valve in animals, a percutaneous valve. Uh, so that, and also, I think there's another story that you personally like, which is what you called in the episode as MacGyvering the heart. Oh. Remember that? Uh, not enough. I don't think I, I need to go back and listen to that one again because I don't, I don't recall the specifics enough, but I, I don't have nearly as much cardiac background as I do in, in brain and peripheral nervous system. So, which is you know, lay education at best. So cardiac being one one level of understanding below that, it does seem to me like that what you guys were doing is like, oh, I need to make a valve. I need for blood to flow this way and not that way. Here, let me change the the pressure and the heart rate and I'll just it's do that. It's biomedical engineering, <laughs> Jojo. Just it's of a different MacGyvering. kind. <laughs> it's called MacGyvering. And I think... Since Jojo doesn't remember that part of the interview, I think we are going to add that here for everybody to understand uh, what that MacGyvering the, the human body was. Um, I, 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 yes, I'm game. School me again. It didn't sink in. We made them 23 millimeters in diameter because that was the average size of surgical valves. And um, so we made, you know, we started making these and they started working really well in our hydrodynamic testing. We finally figured out how to put them in the animals. We put them in the descending aorta in animals. And then we, we basically ripped out an aortic leaflet in the animal to cause massive regurgitation and it caused the valve to function. It's called a Huffnagel valve. I don't know if you've ever heard of one of those, but it was a way to treat uh, aortic regurgitation that a uh, surgeon used back in the 50s. Mm. So uh, we were able to survive animals that way and do, um, you know, kind of biotoxicity testing um, in longer term in animals. So while we were doing this work um, and we were preparing for our first inhuman experience and things were going really well, probably a couple of months away from thinking about doing our first inhuman, Dr. Cribier called me up and he said, Stan, I need the valve. <laughs> Out of the blue, just you, that. Yeah. What do you mean a lot? Well, he said, I've got a patient who's dying and um, this is the only way we can save his life. I said, okay, um, well, tell me about him. This guy's 57 years old, only 57, which probably means he has a bicuspid valve. The younger patients are the ones that have bicuspid. Yeah. But he'd been turned down by uh, three surgical teams, uh, two in Paris and one in Rouen. Um, he showed up in cardiogenic shock in Rouen. 
with his aortic stenosis and an ejection fraction of 8%. I didn't actually know you could be alive with an 8% ejection fraction. Um, with normal is 55. Um, Privier did balloon valvuloplasty on him, but uh, the next morning he was shocky again. and He was not going to make it. Uh, he was a non-surgical patient because he had been a coal miner. He had bad lungs and had a failed aortobifemoral graft. Okay, so this guy is a train wreck. Um, what do you think about him as a person human patient? Is this somebody you would treat? Most people will not touch those patients with the barge pole, unfortunately, as a first patient, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous idea, right? So what will happen is, I said to Cribier, listen, we'll try to save this guy's life. We'll be the good guys. We'll go in, we'll try to save his life. Then he's going to die anyway. And then the French regulatory authorities are going to say that we killed him, Right. We'll try to save his life, and then we'll be accused of killing the guy. So I said, this is a stupid idea. But I said, I'll think about it. So, you know, I talked to Marty Leon, who who encouraged us to do the case, and and Stan Rabinovich, and I would just, I, I just thought, this is crazy. But then, you know, on the walls of PVT, we had two pictures. We had a picture of Dr. Cribier's mother, who actually had aortic stenosis. And she was not a good surgical candidate, right? And she kind of represented the patients that we were working for, the patients in the future that we hoped that we could treat. She lived in uh, in England, and um, she couldn't even get balloon valvuloplasty. And uh, she died of heart failure with aortic stenosis because she was a poor surgical candidate. And I thought about these patients. This is who we're doing it for, right? These are the patients we serve. And this was our first opportunity to try to serve a patient. It was a really, really bad patient. By the way, let me explain how bad a patient he is. Not only has he got an 8% ejection fraction, bad lungs, but because he has a failed aortobifemoral graft, the way we've done all of these patients is through the femoral artery coming up the aorta and going across the aortic valve, right? Well, you can't do that with this patient. He has a failed aortobifemoral graft. We can't go up the femoral arteries. So, Cribier, who's done mitral balloon valvuloplasty, knows the way to do this. What you do is you go up from the femoral vein. You create a hole in the in the atrial septum with a needle. You balloon open that hole. You cross from the right atrium to the left atrium. You put a guide wire in and a catheter. Then you have to take this guide wire and catheter, take it from the right atrium to the left atrium, then across the mitral valve into the left ventricle. Then you make a 120-degree turn, push the guide wire out across the aortic valve, snare the wire which you, you can get a very small catheter through the femoral artery, snare that wire, and externalize it through the femoral artery. It's called body floss. Okay, You can take a wire from the femoral artery all the way through the heart and back out through the other femoral, uh, from the femoral vein out to the femoral arteries. 
you you guys need to come up with some better names than body floss. It's it's a it paints a picture. <laughs> and so you're you're basically playing you're basically playing Mission Impossible meets MacGyver while using ways as a means to get through the heart. Oh. With a dying patient. And and a guy who's in shock, right? So Herbier is incredibly skilled and courageous and dedicated to try to save this guy's life. So I tell the team at Israel to take a vow, two vows actually, and fly up from Israel and um, meet Cribier. They take a flight overnight. They're there for the case the next morning. Um, Cribier, you know, starts without us because he would, we would have missed the case trying to get there. Yeah, and sometimes it's all about the belief in the technology. Well, the engineers were there, but we, Stan and Rabinovich and I couldn't. So we sit up all night um, waiting to hear the results of this case. So, in fact, Ribier creates this guide wire. And when you try to take the valve, the valve's about, you know, over two and a half centimeters long, right? And so when you take this um, around the left ventricle, it props open the mitral valve, which causes mitral insufficiency. And this guy goes into asystole, right? So his heart stops during this case. And Cribier deploys the valve under chest compression. So they're pumping on the guy's chest. Right, so... A nurse is standing on this guy's case, pushing on his chest, while Cribier deploys the valve. And seconds later, after the valve is deployed, the guy's normal rhythm starts. And over the next couple of hours, he goes from being ashen, gray, and dying to pink and responsive. And yeah, so, so the mitral regurgitation was just during the procedure, so when we took the wire out, it, it was restored. And the aortic stenosis, which was what was his biggest problem, um, was was taken care of. And, um, you know, he he sat up and had a glass of champagne and talked with him Cribier that night. And I always think, I always say, well, of course he had champagne. It was, it was France, for goodness sake, right? Don't all the patients get champagne after their surgery <laughs> but uh this actually this guy actually met with um with reporters the next day because it was in the french news that uh this was the first case in the world where a patient had had their valve replaced without open heart surgery it was pretty rem- remarkable so where do we go from here jojo oh well we have our new series that we're and working on, yeah. That we're working on, and I don't think we're ready to fully announce that, but it is it is kind of old home week for us. Um, yes. And I think it'll be really, really good. Um, what's next? Our day jobs are getting busy-er again. Very um, busy. And that's exactly so why be- we've decided that we want to put out quality content, but we don't want to be specifically on 
this stressful schedule of kind of ensuring that we release the episode on exactly that day. It has yeah. nothing to do with with us ignoring all of you, the listeners, but really about ensuring that the time that you provide to us is going to be of 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 is going Value. to be worth every single second or nanosecond that you provide us. I think that that's the reason why sometimes the time between episodes can be one week, it can be two weeks, it can be two and a half weeks. They can't uh, miss us if we don't leave. <laughs> we're not leaving though. I mean, we've done two years. We've 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 kind of built up a community and we've built up people who are looking forward to this and everywhere I go or whoever I talk to, I think they kind of say, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know it was you. I mean, that, that's always the thing that I get. I'm like, what do I look like? Like, do I look like a person who doesn't talk much? Oh, I don't think anybody ever thought that about you, Arun. Well, they think thought that about once. me. I mean, I'm, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. Neither one of us. And And that's one thing I think is pretty funny is a lot of people don't know when we record our sessions, we have to have video active because otherwise I think you and I would speak over each other way more than we already do. And I know you track it out and you edit it and you make it sound a little less. Um, no, but sometimes we've, I've mastered the art of talking over each other because I think there's a beauty No, 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 in no, that. I'm going to talk over you. <laughs> <laughs> but but, I, turn, but I think turn, in, in this season, uh, to be honest, I think in this season, we've actually, I've actually mastered a bit the art of talking over each other with very little pause. And it's not editing. I can promise every single listener that it's not editing that's how we talk to each other and yeah. even when we have certain things rest, written down as bullet points and we're talking about it i think it's just the way it comes out so i hope you guys liked it um i think for the rest of the uh next few episodes you're going to listen to the continuation of our bioelectronic medicine series and then we have something special that we are working up at this point of time. Uh, most of the content is is ready. Uh, in fact, it also was part of our kind of first field research or field interviews where we actually went and met people and kind of, um, kind of interviewed people, etc., uh, and visited them for the first time since uh, the pandemic, given that we uh, started. Arun and Jojo take a field trip. We did, and it's it was fantastic, but that requires a great deal of work. It's much more work than writing yeah. grants for everybody, especially Kip Ludwig, who listens, and every out-of-office that I get from him always says he's busy writing grants, but I can tell you, Kip, that it's much more than that. No, I'm kidding, uh, but it's equal, uh, so... Uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's what we are here for, and I think... Uh, we are and? incredibly proud that we have hit two years and thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank everybody. Thank you to everybody who listens and, and we appreciate that. We appreciate the feedback and the, and the um, support. Um, but we also especially thank Surtech and Cortec. Cortec. I think without, yeah. without both of those groups, you know, Brian Hiley, Dave Monick, Will Pitkin, all of the guys at Surtech and and the amazing team at Cortech, um, they have had and shown unwavering support for us. So if you can do us a favor, and whenever you have a need um, for either one of their goods or services, please feel free to reach out to them directly. But if you'd like an introduction, Arun and I are, are both very close with both of those teams. 
We would be happy to help you. Um, we we solicited support from them because we believe in them and their their level of professionalism, their knowledge, their um, just genuine goodness as people, and that shows through in their in their products and core delivery or core deliverables. And um, they've treated us well, and and we know that if you became a client or a customer of either one of theirs that they would treat you as well as they've treated us. So thank you guys. And both the groups, both the both our sponsors love beer. One being in Germany and the <laughs> other one just being kind of a hoot to drink with. So ha- having successfully emerged from nights of drinking with both groups on multiple occasions, I I can yeah, assure you that that's true. We can vouch for that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and and uh in in the spirit of honoring Tim Dennison in that one, we raise a, a glass and cheers to neuromodulation in all its forms. Yes, absolutely. Neuromodulation in all its forms. And that's exactly what we'll continue to do for the community. And as we always say, this is something that we love doing and we don't do it. Um, and we only do it because we absolutely love it. And we don't do it for the money because there is no money in it. We do it for the community. So once again, just reiterating that. And thanks for all the support and stay tuned for all the good things that's about to come in the future.